Okay, so we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, this evening we're going to be looking at chapters uh, 11 and chapter 12. I have to say, um, personally, these are probably my favourite chapters in the entire book. Um, for the reasons I see as we go through, the whole book is incredible. Um, but these chapters this evening are just, just stunning. Uh, in terms of the, the information, the design, the complete control over history that God demonstrates, uh, and all that is set up from this point on. Um, so, just a, a quick summary of what we've looked at already. Um, we've also covered the first ten chapters now of the Gospel of John. Jesus had come as the light of the world. That's something that's just re- reiterated time and again um, through those early chapters. Um, and clearly we were in darkness uh, and blind to the true nature of our spiritual condition. But rather than God saying to us, you know, just take it on faith, just accept, or Jesus saying, just accept me as it is, you know, I'm the Messiah, just believe it. No, no, that's never the way scripture deals with things. There's always evidence, there's always proofs presented. Uh, never are we expected just to take it on faith. So many Christians believe that our faith is just a kind of a, a leap in the dark. It's, it's far from that. You know, when you look at the New Testament, you see that Paul's method uh, of preaching and sharing the gospel was to reason with people uh, from the gospel. Um, you know, he would, he, they would convince people through the word of God. Uh, and Jesus, as we've seen, provided many witnesses uh, to attest to his being the Son of Man. And that, that term, Son of Man, when you read that to the Jews, understand that they would have understood that as being the Messiah. So the Jews recognised, but up to this point, rejected his claim to be God. Now, again, uh, some of the, the cults and uh, other uh, religions would tell us that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if they, if they say that, they've never studied this gospel. We've seen time and time again, Jesus clearly claims to be God, veiled in human flesh. Uh, and the Jews understood that. Uh, but consequently, because of that, they sought to stone him, because they saw that as being blasphemy. And up until now, that has been the reason... They wanted to kill Jesus. It's been based upon uh, this assumption in their minds that Jesus was committing blasphemy. The penalty for that under the law was to be stoned. Now, up to this point, we now have two issues that effectively are unresolved. The first of those is the reaction of the Jews to Jesus. There's been this um, growing hatred, if like, this festering um, under the surface uh, hatred towards Jesus. And uh, there's also been the secrecy surrounding Jesus and his identity. Um, there's been this deliberate suppression of who Jesus is by Jesus himself. Now, the Jews have actually tried to force a public confession of Jesus to say that he was the Messiah, the King. And Jesus is very cautious up to this point not to actually give it to them as clearly and concisely as that. You see, he wouldn't just go along with their thing. Because what the Jews wanted to do was to accuse Jesus before the Romans, get him arrested, deal with the problem. Jesus wasn't going to play that game. Um, see, the issue was one of timing. Now, both of those, those uh, issues, the, the reaction of the Jews to Jesus and this whole secrecy issue, as it were, both reached their crescendo in chapters 11 and 12, which is why these are so pivotal in the presentation that John gives us. Up until now, everything has been building up to this point, and what we're going to look at tonight now is laying the foundation for the rest of John's Gospel. Now, chapters 1 through 10 cover, time-wise, about three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see that chapter 12 through 20 cover just one week. Okay, so it's, a, it's an incredible um, focusing in now 
uh, on this particular week. And it is, I believe, the most important week in human history. And as we go through the rest of the Gospel, we'll see so many incredible things. And you'll see how God has engineered everything to all culminate in this particular week. Now, we've already mentioned, we've gone through, that John records seven specific miracles in his Gospel. Um, he's... Um, We've obviously looked at those those first six already. In this this chapter 11 now that we're going to look at this evening, we get that that seventh miracle, the raising of Lazarus. And all the miracles, Jesus actually pointed to those and said that they are proofs of his Messiahship. And the the types of miracles that Jesus had done here um, are are things that that just couldn't have been manufactured by some man, by by some clever trickery. Um, These are all things that Jesus himself points to as evidence of his authority and the person who he is. Uh, interestingly enough, John is the only uh, gospel writer to record this raising of Lazarus, the miracle we're going to look at to start with. So, without any further ado, let's uh, go into chapter 11. And we read verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now notice this is important because we're going to pick up with this later. John kind of puts in a little parenthesis here. He says... It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, John specifically puts that in here, and we'll pick up on that when we get to chapter 12. Um, he's arriving, Jesus is arriving, uh, sorry, we're told that Lazarus is of Bethany, and it's in the town of Bethany that the particular event referred to in verse 2 took place, which is why John mentions it at that point. But he then carries on with what he's saying about Lazarus being sick. He says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. What a lovely thought to know that the Lord loved you. And yet, for each of us, we know that is true also. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, do we see our predicaments that way? You know, it's so easy when we find ourselves in a, a, a sickness or a circumstance that we don't necessarily understand. Um, we kind of question God and wonder why. But just as it was here with Lazarus, if we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we can bank on that promise from Romans 8.28, you know, that all things, all things work together for good for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Just as Jesus is saying here with Lazarus that this is something that has been allowed for the glory of God, If we are his, then the same applies to our lives also. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Now, before we go any further with that, just just, this whole idea here that Jesus knows that his friend, this person he's saying he loves, is sick. And Jesus is this one that's healed people of all kinds of sicknesses. And he says, yeah, we'll, we'll stay put for a bit. You see, God is not working to our timetables. Um, it's interesting that we have uh, a great verse in Isaiah, uh, verse 89. It says, for my thoughts, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, God doesn't always work to our timetables. And we need to understand that God knows what he's doing. And we can trust him, even though things don't make sense to us. We may never understand in this life. Okay, But I mean, we can, uh, again, bank with, uh, with what the, um, 
Apostle Paul tells us that we can consider the present, present sufferings not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Just, just think that through. You know, the present sufferings, all the things we endure that we go through that we don't understand, Paul says it's not even worth comparing with that which is coming for us. Now Jesus is saying he's going to go into Judea now and everything else. And the disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. And now goes thither again. They don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus is going to go back to this place where he is likely to get stoned. Well, you see, the Jews sincere, the, the disciples are rather sincere. They don't want to see Jesus harmed or anything else. But of course, this, this comment comes from a lack of believing and understanding his words. Jesus had already told them um, back in... Um, Matthew 16, for one example, uh, is reading verse 21. Jesus has said to the disciples, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how they must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. See, Jesus had already told them, but because they didn't understand or believe his word, they're now asking this question, why are you going back? Well, clearly, if they'd have understood... And the lesson, of course, for us is there that, you know, we get often very confused about what the Lord's doing. But if we are to understand his word, if we get into his word, these things will make sense. Because we'll find that God's revealed things already in his word, even pertaining to our lives. As we go through, God will show us things uh, applicable to our current situations. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. Now this is kind of a, a double entendre that Jesus is giving us. Um, we've got obviously the, the, the reference that Jesus himself is the light of the world. And we should be walking in him. If we're not walking in him, then we're going to stumble. But there's also, um, from the, the, the way this is, is worded, according to what the Greek scholars say, that Jesus is just giving this um, analogy of a man that's walking in the daytime. And simply, all the time we're, we're sojourning during the day, we're okay. We're not going to trip up. That there's an allotted time that we're okay. And that's what he's saying. You know, we can go back to Jerusalem. We'll be okay. There's not going to be any problems because the night hasn't yet come. When the night comes, uh, notice what we're told. There's that, that phrase, um, he stumbleth. Um, and that, that word in the Greek just means to strike out, to surge against. What Jesus is saying is, all the time we're walking in the day, we're okay. Nothing's going to happen to me. But there is coming a time when the darkness will come. Okay, and that man, which I believe Jesus is referring to himself here, will then be in that night time, that night season, stumbling that we surged against. Well, that's exactly what happened as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Verse 11, And these things he said, and after, uh, then he said unto them. Now, just pausing there, because John makes that point there of, of these things, these, uh, things said he. You know, it's important what Jesus has just said, that there is coming this time when this darkness, this, this hour would come, that Jesus would be, as it were, surged against. John just seems to underline that. So these things said he. Uh, and after he had said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he should do well. Obviously they're thinking if he's having a rest, bodies recover a little bit when we sleep. That's what sleep partly for for us. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. It's interesting that we have this, this uh, word used here by Jesus, sleep, in reference to death. Um, but it's very apt when you actually look in scripture. Uh, it's used several times in the Old Testament uh, as a reference to death. Um, but in the New Testament, it's only used in connection with believers. Uh, which is quite interesting because sleep obviously is harmless. Uh, and you can 
draw that from Psalm 23 as well. Sleep comes as a welcome relief. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.12. Um, and when we lie down in sleep, we lie down to rise again. Okay, and you see this, this, this parable. This is why sleep is used to uh, refer to death for believers. And again, it's a time of rest for us. It shuts out the sorrows of life. It speaks of the ease with which the Lord will awaken us. He just speaks our name. You know, when somebody's asleep, if you want to wake them up, just speak their name. And it's a time when the body is fitted for the duties of the morrow. That's quite nice. I've got that list from, from Chuck Miser from his commentaries. Um, but I think that's just a great uh, understanding of, of why Jesus uses this term sleep. It is so fitting for believers. When believers die, it is effectively sleeping because we are going to rise again. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, obviously the disciples hadn't grasped it, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then Thomas, which is called Didymus, that just simply means the twin, who was one of two, uh, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Quite a pessimistic chap. Um, not quite sure of what's going on here, but uh, I like this comment from Oswald Chambers. He says, Thomas was naturally gloomy, not happy and healthy-minded. Uh, that was not the way he was made. He was loyal to Jesus Christ, but he took the sick view of life. He always thought the worst was going to happen. Do you remember that when Lazarus died and Jesus said he was going to Bethany, Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. It was no use going to Thomas and preaching the gospel of cheerfulness. You can't alter facts by saying, cheer up. What did Jesus Christ, what did Jesus Christ do for Thomas? He brought him into personal contact with himself and altered him entirely. That's great. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are going through different predicaments, and it's no use to just go, cheer up, because that doesn't help them. They need to be in that intimate relationship with Jesus. And then even in the midst of difficult situations, things start to uh, become clear. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Uh, obviously, referring to Lazarus. And now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Now that's about two miles or so away from Jerusalem itself. Bethany just outside, just over the Mount of Olives. And we're told, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now what we can understand from that is that Lazarus and his family were well respected in the area. This wasn't just some, you know, nobody knew who these people were. People knew about this family and Lazarus obviously was respected, hence the, the many of the Jews... Um, and again, John is consistent in his use of words. When he refers to the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leadership, not just the people. Uh, you'll find that when he refers to the people, he says the people. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. You know, Martha's that practical one who does all the organising and everything else. We know people like that, I'm sure. Um, and Mary sat in the house. I, I suspect that Mary was sulking a bit. You see, she knew what Jesus could have accomplished. Uh, I think it's that, you know, we'll see her say it when she meets Jesus in a moment. Um, but if Jesus had just been there, if only he'd come a bit earlier. Verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. And she says exactly the same thing. This was what they were thinking. You know, if only you could have been here, you could have prevented this. And this is the way we see in our own circumstances. Lord, if only you'd have done this, then... But then not what she says. She said, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Now, we may 
make the assumption here that she's speaking in great faith of what she knows that God could do now. But as we'll see from, from the following verses, that's not a, a statement of faith. That's kind of, I, I still believe in you, I still trust you, I know that God will do what you're asking, you know, even though you've let this happen kind of thing. And she goes on. Um, just commenting again on, on you know, both Mary and Martha, says, but particularly Mary, the fact that she stays at home doesn't go out. You know, there's times that we don't go out to Jesus out of our disappointment and frustration, uh, that he didn't fulfill our plans in the time that we decided it should be done. Uh, again, as we said earlier from Isaiah, that his ways are not our ways. And again, we need to remember that we're the clay. Okay, and he is the bottom. Verse 23, Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, and look, this, this betrays the fact that she didn't actually expect this to happen now. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was her expectation. That she's seeing this is all over. There's no recovery now from this. But Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. Now, First of all, that's uh, another one of these I am statements. It's actually the fifth I am am statement that John records for us. Uh, again, we've mentioned John records seven I am statements throughout the book. Five we've mentioned previously as well denotes grace and mercy, and none more so than in this statement that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus says, verse 26, Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says to Martha, do you believe this? Well, Martha answers, she said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She's acknowledging that Jesus is that one that has been promised by the prophets of old. And when she had said so, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calls for thee. You see, she's got this point, she believes in God. She's got this kind of understanding of who he is. But she really doesn't yet know him. And we're going to see an incredible change take place in both of these ladies' lives. Verse 29, referring to Mary. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. So Jesus now calling Mary to come and see him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were in the house and had comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying... She goes unto the grave to weep there. So they don't know why she's going. She sneaks out. They obviously are aware she's gone and they follow after her. Then when Mary was come, uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. See, again, this was her expectation. Lord, you know, you've allowed this to happen because you didn't get it. You haven't fulfilled the desire I had. If you'd have only been here, you could have solved this problem. You know, we need to just pause and ask ourselves, is our relationship to God, our relationship to Jesus, based upon what we perceive him being able to do for us? Or is our relationship based upon our love for him? Now we're going to see with both of these ladies, this changes around completely. Because at the moment, that relationship, there is that, that love there, but it's in many ways based upon what they perceive he can do. And there are a lot of people that, that come into the church because of the perceived blessings. They think that God will do this for them or that for them, maybe provide wealth for them or prosperity or happiness or whatever else. And that is the basis for their relationship. Very interesting portion. I think we mentioned it in the previous session uh, in the book of Leviticus about um, the, the fire 
um, that Nadab and Abihu had uh, this profane fire. It hadn't come from the altar. Um, what did the altar represent? It represents that burnt sacrifice. It was the one, it was the fire was kindled by God. And it points very much to Jesus, who was obviously that sacrifice who God allowed to be bruised for our iniquities. And our worship should be kindled from the fire of the altar, from that sacrifice, understanding just who Jesus is. Not out of the perceived blessings that we think we may get out of it. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. So the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35 of John 11, but it's also probably one of the most powerful. You know, we see there exactly what we're told in uh, um, various other portions uh, of the New Testament. Let's just look at Hebrews 4, verse 15 through 16. It says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, he's been touched with our infirmities. Jesus understands. Jesus wept. He knew the emotion. And incidentally, you know, death is not something that we are programmed for. God never designed us to be able to, or to intend us to have to deal with death. It was something that came about as a result of the fall, but it was not something that God had planned as part of his creation. And that's why we struggle with death. It's so hard for us to, to deal with it. And even Jesus himself, in his, his human form, in, in, in this, this frame that he willingly took upon himself, struggles, he, he, he weeps, he groans within him, we're told. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, we're told, Let this mind be in you, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of uh, no reputation, took upon him the form of the servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross you know again he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man this is the Jesus who is the the ruler of all the creator of all things and yet here comes into his creation and, and he, he's grieving that a friend of his has died the, the pain that we experience Jesus knows just so well Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Uh, you see, this is kind of contempt, not compassion from them. They're not looking at Jesus being sorry that he's upset, but they're, they're kind of like, you know, well, you've done all these wonderful things. Couldn't you have helped your friend out? Uh, it's kind of a, um, uh, a bit of a side to what they're saying there. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, comes to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take you away the stone. Uh, Martha, take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. You can't get better than King James, can you? Uh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said not I unto thee, that if thou wilt believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. I think this is, this is quite remarkable, uh, this whole seen him because up until now Mary and Martha have not been anticipating a resurrection they've just been anticipating that at the end on the, the, the day of resurrection and the long list of future whatever that would be for them that Lazarus would then be raised and they get to the grave and Jesus is saying take away the stone and you can imagine the people amongst the crowd they're thinking what, what, 
what does he want to look at the body again? Why, why, why would you, you know, okay, kind of nice to say goodbye and things, but by this time, the corpse is going through all these kind of decomposing stages and it's really not going to be very pleasant. Why does Jesus want to see the body? And then verse 40, Jesus said unto her, so I not unto thee, that if thou wilt believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. And I think that's the first moment that Mary and Martha suddenly perceive what may be about to happen here. You know, it is that, can the impossible be possible? <laughs> the question for us, do we have the faith to go and move the stone? There's a lot of things that the Lord will bring us to. And in that question, do you believe that I can do this? Interesting in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, verse 13 of Joshua 3, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priest that bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that came down from above, and they shall stand upon heap. They're about to cross over this river that's in full flood. And Jesus, or the Lord is saying to them, okay, the priests are going to go in first and carry the ark. And when the feet of the priests that bear the ark are in the water, the water's going to be cut off. Now, for the priests carrying the ark at the back, Possibly not so bad. But for those that were at the front, because this implies that it had to be all the priests that were in the water, if you look at the, the way this is actually written. And they had to all get in the water. So, you know, for the ones at the back, they're starting to get away. But the guys at the front are probably up to their necks now. That's kind of a bit of faith. But God, you see, gives us these opportunities. There's um, another example in 2 Kings 5, where, with Nahum the Syrian. He goes, obviously, um, to, to uh, Elijah, um, sorry, Elisha. Um, and th- this prophet of the Lord says, go and bathe in the Jordan. The Jordan's a dirty, muddy river. I've got much better rivers back home. But then he realizes, actually, no, this is what the Lord said. I'll go and do it. And obviously his servant said to him, you know, if he's asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? So he goes and does this thing. He goes and participates. It's like going and moving the stone. He's actually doing something. Do we have the faith to take that step of faith, believing that actually the Lord will come through for us? You know, it's interesting that the Lord allows us to participate in the things that he's doing in our life. And ultimately, it's all part of his training program. Do we have that faith to go and do that thing? It may seem impossible for Martha and Mary. They're thinking, but I don't, will it, I, you know. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that thou heard me, thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou heard me, hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So the Puritans used to say that Jesus had to specifically say to Lazarus, otherwise everybody in the grave may well have come forth. Again, just imagine this, and this stone is, is, is laid to the side. And everybody's got their eyes transfixed looking at Jesus. What is going to happen here? And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. And just imagine being one of those people that got that detail to go and actually start taking these grave clothes off this person that's been dead for four days. You know, for a start, is it really Lazarus? Is this some kind of clever hoax that Jesus has, has brought about here? You know, this, all we know at the moment is that somebody has just walked out of this tomb. 
So these people go up and they start taking these grey clothes off. You can imagine the intensity of the moment. All of a sudden, yeah, it's Lazarus. He is back from the dead. He stepped back from eternity into time. Uh, again, must have been an incredible experience for Lazarus. But think of what it's going to be like for us. You know, when we have that call, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, as the resurrection chapter that Paul gives us, and 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, when the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trump of God, the dead of Christ, the dead in Christ shall raise, then we that are alive and remain shall be caught up with them. What is it going to be like? Just as Lazarus heard that voice, the Lord calling his name, so the Lord will call our names. Now it's interesting that Lazarus is now raised, but notice we're specifically told that he's bound in these grave clothes. Very important point that we'll comment on. Uh, and again, just the, the whole intensity of this, this period of time. Then many of the Jews which uh, came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And notice we told that many of the Jews, this is, I think this is incredible. Uh, let's just read that verse 47. They gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? For this man does many miracles. Well, certainly he has done. Uh, again, John's only recorded seven out of all the ones he's done for us. But this is now, if you like, the pinnacle. This is just so incredible. But I think it's interesting because we have, if you like, a final harvest before nightfall. This is the last group of people that we read about coming to know the Lord. And God allows this miracle as an opportunity for those that would come before that darkness, that time of darkness that Jesus has spoken about comes. Um, and I think it's interesting because we also are heading into a time of darkness. And I believe that God will allow many opportunities for many to be brought in. Now, the way is very narrow and there are few that find it. But I believe in just the same way there's, there's all sorts of um, prophetic scriptures that indicate that there may be some sort of revival as we get right to the end. And the Lord will bring in a final gathering. Uh, and it's something we need to pray for. So now the Jewish leaders are in a bit of a predicament. You know, they get, it's the whole thing is getting out of control. If we let him alone, thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. I need to uh, just pause here quickly because there's a major underlying issue here. You see, what the Jews are saying is this could lead to an uprising against Rome itself. And if that happens, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our nation. You see, this was what the Messiah was to do. To come and conquer their enemies and to, to liberate Israel. This is what they were expecting. See, the Jews were awaiting a national deliverer. And this is the, the problem that the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews have at this time. That whether Jesus is or isn't, and funny enough, they never actually deal with that question. What if Jesus is the Messiah? They just make the assumption he can't be the Messiah. Therefore, they want to make sure that we stop him at all costs. Because all of these things are now happening. And if the Romans step in, we could lose our nation. This is what they're concerned about. Again... These are the things that have been prophesied of Jesus in, uh, uh, even as from his birth. Luke 1, verse 32-33. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, the promise that Jesus would sit on the throne of David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is a national throne. We are very familiar with Micah 5 too. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, 
So often these promises are ignored and neglected. But Jesus was uh, prophesied that he would sit on the throne of David and he would rule in Israel. Has that happened yet? No. If these prophecies are to be fulfilled, there has to come a time that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. That necessitates Israel remaining a nation. Okay, These are huge, huge uh, implications under this. The prayer of uh, Zechariah, his hope and his servant Israel. We're talking of, of, of the promise of the Messiah coming in remembrance of his mercy and he spoke as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his seed forever. Uh, from Luke 1, uh, 68-71, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This was the concern of those Jewish leaders, that Jesus was going to try and do something, in their eyes, stupid, and go against Rome. And they were so concerned that they were going to lose everything. Interestingly enough, we find that the disciples also had this expectation. But just in Matthew 2, 1 and 2 of the, the Magi, uh, now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, uh, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And again, Acts 1, verse 6, at the time of the ascension, the disciples say, Are you at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they expected. We're going to mention it in a little while, but Luke 19 starts off because uh, talking about um, Zacchaeus, but then goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus perceived that the people were expecting the kingdom to come now. That's what they were expecting. This is the problem these Jewish leaders have. And they're frightened. And that's why now this whole thing's shifting from just wanting to stone him because of blasphemy. They're now concerned for their nation. And therefore we read, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest the same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider it uh, that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Again, uh, the question as to whether Jesus was the Messiah doesn't even seem to be entertained. Uh, but ironically here, in trying to prevent an uprising against Rome, the Jewish leaders in rejecting Jesus try to hold on to what they had and end up losing absolutely everything. And Jesus said, you know, if I gain the whole world but lose my soul, and uh, these people here, they're trying, to gain, they're trying to hold on to everything they've got. But by rejecting Jesus, they ultimately will lose everything. But these words, I haven't commented specifically on what Caiaphas said, because John himself does. He says, this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. It's incredible prophecy of all that will be accomplished. Then from that day forth they took counsel together uh, for to put him to death. This has now moved on way more than we have up to this point. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness into the city called Ephraim. Um, there continued with his disciples. Now it's all an issue of timing. You see the decision has been made that they're going to kill him. But Jesus knows that we're working to a timetable here. So he now goes away and this gets out of the way just for a short while. Uh, again, it's because of that timing that Jesus leaves. And then we're told, verse 55, The Jews' Passover was night hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. 
And then sought they for Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think you? Would he, uh, would he not come to the feast? See there, thinking, well, you know, Jesus knows that his life's in danger, so maybe he won't come up. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he should, uh, so knew uh, where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Just a, as a side note there, we're going to move into the next chapter. Um, that command applied also to Simon, to Lazarus, to Mary, to Martha. They also should have given Jesus up according to this command that had been given. But they feared God, feared Jesus more than man. There's a wonderful model um, that we see here with Lazarus uh, that we just have to mention before we move on. You see, we have four stages uh, with Lazarus. Um, See, Lazarus spoke, uh, so Jesus spoke Lazarus' name, and he was raised from the dead. See, he started off in that situation, he was dead. Just as we are dead in trespasses and sins. Um, he was free from the grave, but bound by the grave clothes, and still effectively powerless to help himself. Um, Jesus, therefore, it's interesting, he uses others, if you remember, since them uh, to take these grave clothes off, and God will use others in ministering to us as well. Um, we then find that obviously he starts off dead. He moves on to his face of being defeated as he's bound by the grave clothes. Um, the next stage is that Lazarus is dangerous. Um, what happens obviously is the Jewish leaders will see, as we go on uh, a little bit further in the study, that they actually want to get rid of Lazarus as well because now he's this, this uh, incredible witness. Everybody knew, we mentioned earlier, that his family were well known. And now Lazarus is a real threat to them. Okay? Uh, and then the final stage we find, we'll see as we move into this next chapter, Lazarus is dining with the Lord. Now for us, we were uh, dead in trespasses and sins, as we said, that's uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1. And we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but that didn't free us from the power of sin. Uh, the innocent still does bind us. Jesus, by his grace, does his work in us, what we refer to as sanctification, setting us apart. Uh, often using others to minister to us, just as they've done to Lazarus. And we see that going on. But once we're saved from the penalty of sin, um, and we go through that process of, of on a day-by-day basis, being delivered from the power of sin, we become living epistles, just as Lazarus was here. He become, uh, as effectively, um, we read about, I think it's uh, um, uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, I think it is, of, of being living epistles, that we uh, declare the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. That's what Lazarus was doing, and it become dangerous. Um, and also for the world around us we're dangerous because we don't go with them and Peter talks First Peter 4 verse 4 uh, they think it's strange that you run not with them into the same excess of right and speaking evil of you uh, the world doesn't understand us um, but ultimately we go through this stage then that we were dead we were defeated then we become dangerous as we learn to deal with sin in our lives we become sanctified and then ultimately we have that privilege just as Lazarus did of ultimately dining with the Lord. This is a beautiful picture that we have there. Okay, so into John chapter 12 now. Then, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, sorry, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Okay, now, Bethany's going to become Jesus' residence during this final week of his ministry. Um, and John makes mention that this was the location of the raising of Lazarus, obviously. 
But then we have this then six day, or then Jesus six days before the Passover. That has caused so much confusion amongst scholars. And I just want to just quickly take you through part of the reason that problem exists. And it's simply because what does John mean by the term Passover? Now we would think surely he means Passover. But we get a clue in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22 verse 1 tells us, Luke there says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. What you'll find if you do a diligent study is that we have interchangeable terms that are used uh, in the Gospels. We have the first day of unleavened bread. We'll look at this in just a second to break it down and make it a bit easier. Um, we also have the Feast of Passover. They were both to be the 14th day of the first month for the Jews, as codified were given to us back in Exodus 12. We also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was specifically to be on the 15th. And we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the whole period was to be a time when they had unleavened bread. And that was a festival period, generally speaking, counted from the 15th. Uh, there's the Passover, which is also, in the term of the way it's used, and John uses it, and I'll explain, is counted from the 15th, not the 14th. Okay, now let's just look at this at the chart to make, make sense. We have seven days for the Jews where they were to eat unleavened bread. And it's all to do with also the exodus from Egypt and everything else. The first day there to eat unleavened bread is called the Feast of Passover. It's the specific memorial of the Passover in Egypt. That occurs on the 14th day. It's a day when they're told they're not allowed to do any servile work. Now, small little word servile, but it's really important because it actually means that they can do certain work, but they're not allowed to do work for which remuneration will be received. In other words, you're not allowed to do work for which you get paid. Okay, so on the 14th, they can do certain things, such as prepare food, specifically, uh, as mentioned in Exodus 12, is one of the things they could specifically do. The 15th is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a specific feast day all on its own, the one-day feast, um, and it's a day when no work is permitted, just like a regular Saturday Sabbath. So the, the 15th, and again, it would also be referred to as a Sabbath. Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean Saturday. Um, and it was also one of the three feasts that were told about in Exodus 23, when all the Jewish males had to present themselves to the Lord. Three times a year, Jewish males had to go up to Jerusalem. And this was one of them. And we're also told that the first and last day were to be the specific days referred to as a holy convocation. Again, certain work was permitted, but only certain things, not anything for which they'd be paid. So they are our terms. Now because of this, those, those phrases that we mentioned are used interchangeably. The whole period could be referred to as the Passover. The whole period could be referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was like a festival where they ate unleavened bread. But also we have specifically the Feast of Passover on the 14th and the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th. Okay? Now let's um, just move on because there's a very interesting verse that we'll get to uh, next time but it's uh, important so we have to throw in here. In um, John 13, the first couple of verses, we read now before the Feast of the Passover, before the Feast, okay? Um, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Notice, and supper being ended. Well, supper was the Passover. Jesus said to the disciples, I long to eat this Passover with you. So we know that what we refer to as the Last Supper was the Passover meal. It's very clear from Scripture that's what it was. Some people try to argue that Jesus didn't actually eat the Passover with his disciples. No, he clearly, from Scripture, we're told he wanted to eat the Passover and did indeed eat the Passover. 
But John is telling us before the Feast of Passover, how do we reconcile this? Well, it's not a problem, um, because what we find is that both Mark, or say both of them, have Mark, Luke and John, all refer to um, the feast or festival of unleavened bread as beginning on the 15th as the Passover. Okay, they use that term, starting on the 15th. Now, um, this is not something exclusively that I've discovered, as it's many scholars have uh, worked this out in the past. Robert, Sir Robert Anderson, for one, in his book, The Coming Prince, makes this comment. In the same way that the Feast of Weeks came to be commonly designated Pentecost, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was popularly called the Passover. That title was common to the Supper and the Feast, and included both. But the intelligent Jew would never confound the two. And if he spoke emphatically of the Feast of the Passover, he would thereby mark the festival to the exclusion of the Supper. Okay, so the Supper would be on the evening of the 14th, or the 14th as it starts. Um, but that would, if you refer to that is specifically, it's separating it from the festival. Now, to look at it uh, in, a, in a graph form, where's my, um, got my, uh, yeah. Okay, so these are now, these are the six days. Six days. These are six days before the Passover. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six. Now to our thinking, the Passover begins again. The Jewish day begins in the evening. So the 14th for them would be our 13th on the Wednesday. We're getting to the evening here. But this is where the Jewish day, the 14th, would begin. So this is where the Last Supper occurs. But from John's reckoning, thinking of the festival. Now think of it this way. For most people... Christmas will start Christmas Eve. A lot of people will take Christmas Eve off. It's kind of the, the day before the celebration. But really, we refer to it as part of Christmas often, but Christmas doesn't start until the first day we actually stop working, which is normally Christmas Day, unless you're a mum, in which case it doesn't stop on Christmas Day. Carry on. Um, okay, so there are our six days. And, and this whole thing, we'll, we'll deal with all the details. Uh, and obviously you can clearly see that the, the crucifixion occurred on the Thursday. And we'll cover this as we go through the remaining uh, chapters in the Gospel of John. If you want more details, uh, we've actually got a complete study on Passion Week that goes through looking at all these elements and how it all fits together. And it actually only fits together one way. It's like a big jigsaw. Uh, there's lots and lots and lots of scriptures that come together, but everything fits absolutely perfectly. And you can see also there's no problem with three days, three nights either, and all those kind of details. So, just to carry on then, we read verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. It's interesting, we're told there um, that Martha served. This is a changed Martha. Do you remember back in uh, Luke 38? came to pass as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into a house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Contrast between these two girls. And bear in mind that this time they were only young girls. They're not weak. But our, our, our Sunday school impression is that these are quite elderly ladies. No, these were young girls at this point. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Better therefore that she help me. And we get like that, don't we? We see other people not apparently doing anything. And we get frustrated. Come on, you should do something. You should help. You should get involved. Why? Well, because we're counting the cost. Our labour is not a labour of love. Okay? And, and what we find now with Martha, this woman who got so frustrated that she seems to be doing all the work, she's now serving. And there's no comment that she's upset or frustrated by this at all. It's a privilege. She's now seen 
Jesus for who he is. Jesus has just raised her brother from the dead. She's got a completely different perception of who Jesus is. And now she serves. And she's glad to serve. Whatever opportunity she has to serve this man, she will do it. Lazarus, we're told, uh, was one of those that sat at the table. And it's important that that's mentioned um, because we'll, we'll pick up on that in a moment. This is the point that Johnny's making. Uh, that Lazarus was at the, this supper. Uh, and obviously the final thing is that they made him a supper. Well, that is an evening meal. Okay, so this is when Jesus arrives. This would have been the, the Sabbath. Okay, um, and there's a limit to how far the Jews could travel on the Sabbath, obviously, you know, from, the, from, the, from the law, from the Torah. But Jesus then arrives in Bethany there sometime after dark, or after sundown, uh, and they make him an evening meal. And we notice that this day here we go on to the following day as we see, which becomes what we refer to as Palm Sunday. So, uh, but before we get there, John inserts another parenthesis. You remember I mentioned back at the beginning of verse eleven, or chapter eleven. There's a parenthesis. John inserts a little bit there, mentioning about the, the what Mary had done in anointing him. Well, we have another one here, um, and this is something that uh, I've yet to find another scholar agree with me on. So I would urge just caution: be Bereans, go and study this and check it for yourself. But the event that we're about to read here actually occurs on the Tuesday. Okay, three days later. But John inserts it here. Why does he put it here? Well, for various reasons. It was so important, and it promised to be a memorial to Mary. Do you remember the other gospel writers? They mentioned that wherever this is recounted, yeah, it will be as a, given, told as a memorial to her. They don't mention her name. Unless it was for John, you wouldn't know which woman it was that had done this. Okay. Now, part of the reason was probably that because the, gospel, the other gospels were written earlier... They didn't want to mention Mary's name because they didn't want her to be persecuted or any difficulties occur. By the time John writes, chances are that Mary actually died by now. John's writing right at the end of the first century, sometime after he's come back from Patmos, we believe. Okay. Uh, also, it actually occurred in the same location. and um, it, it, The same place that having his supper was the same place that, that anointing uh, take, takes place in, in just a couple of days' time. But importantly, and we'll mention this next time, it actually gives the background for John 13, verse 2, and I think also verse 9, which we'll, we'll comment on uh, next time. Um, but John has to include this somewhere, so he inserts it here. Now look, we try and uh, show you the, the break. We've got this first two verses, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he'd raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Now jump to verse 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. Who? Lazarus. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. That is the flow of what John is saying. Now back at the beginning of verse um, 11, sorry, chapter 11, we have that parenthesis, and in our translation, it's actually put in brackets. So we know it's inserted. Um, you can see it there. It was Mary, which anointed the Lord. Um, you see, when John sees, gets Jesus to Bethany, he mentions the event. When he gets to the house, well, he actually gives us the details. But it's inserted. It's not the main thing that John is telling us about, but it's important enough that John wants to include it. So he includes it here. There have been some scholars that have tried to suggest that it's actually two separate events. Well, we'll comment in a, in a moment a reason why that is just, just not the case. This is the same event. John just includes it here. It's not a contradiction. It's just part of his narrative. But he just inserts it in amongst what he's saying because it takes place in this house. 
And from a grammatical point of view, it's not a problem at all. We have um, verse 3 start, then took Mary a pound of ointment. Now, of course, in our vocabulary, we see that as being, you know, it follows on from the previous. But the actual word in the Hebrew, uh, sorry, in the Greek, um, from the, the um, Strong's Concordance is it's apparently a, a primary word adverbally, certainly, uh, or conjunctively, accordingly. And King James is translated various ways, but including likewise, uh, therefore, verily, wherefore. So the idea is, just as on this occasion we had supper also, in like manner, so this is the way that John is using the, the, the Greek word there. It is not saying that this happened at the same time, but in the same way we were gathered together for a meal, so... Okay. Again, I'll let you take that away. You can look at it yourself if you want to. Um, if you think that that has to follow and it would actually occurred on this occasion, you have other major problems. That's the most obvious way of reconciling uh, that portion. And it certainly makes a lot of sense because of the way John uses it at the beginning of chapter 11 as well. Okay. So now let's actually look at this, this parenthesis that John inserts. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odour of the ointment. This is reckoned to be about a year's wages. Okay? That is another compelling reason why this didn't happen twice. Okay? This is just a once-off event. Um, but Mary here, she, this is... Oh, sorry, she mentioned spike oil. It's a plant actually, extract that comes from India, from where it goes around the Himalayas. Uh, and it, at that time, it was considered very, very expensive, and various other uh, ancient writers have mentioned to it. Um, but you see, by now, Mary's life has been radically altered. She, just as Mary, as Martha was seen, she's now serving willingly. Mary now is prepared to to give up all of this that probably she'd have once held dear. Yeah, her value system has now changed. The things of this world no longer matter. Philippians 3, 7 to 11, we have our own challenge to reevaluate what really is important. See, we put so much store in financial security and things like that. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those things, or those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but none that I may win Christ. Mary's got that attitude now. Nothing is important apart from Jesus, my relationship to him, worshipping him. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith, uh, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is uh, of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Interesting, isn't it? That Paul here is talking about counting everything lost because I know the power of his resurrection. What was it that was motivating Mary to do this? knowing the power of his resurrection. Exactly as Paul was saying, that was it. It's the same for us. If we know the power of his resurrection, then it will change our perspective on what we deem important. Let's just carry on. Um, verse 4, Then one of his disciples, this is still in this parenthesis, uh, said, or sorry, then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this one that sold 300 pence and given to the poor? That's the logic of compromise. It seems so reasonable, doesn't it? Why not do this? You see, we can present such practical reasons for not surrendering all to Christ. Um, I put some suggested examples in the notes of the way that we try and make excuses for not giving all. Uh, and they're all good reasons, all very practical, but they're always got flaws with them. You know, we must consider this, we must consider that. 
Interestingly, take note of this uh, portion of scripture, very important. Haggai chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Israel back in the land, supposed to be building the temple of the Lord. Haggai says to them, the Lord says to say to Haggai, Haggai to tell them, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this how I waste, the house of my waste? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You, you clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. So many people do that. They try and provide for themselves. They try and do all that they think they have to do to make sure they're okay. And when that's sorted, then we'll give the things to the Lord. No, it's the wrong way around. People will try and build their own kingdoms first. But the Lord is saying, no, you need to seek first the kingdom of heaven. All these things should be added unto you. Really challenging portion of scripture from Haggai. Judas makes his comment back into the poor. And we're then we're told, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put in. But therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone against the day of my burying. She has kept this. Whether Mary realised, we don't know. But Jesus understood that this was anointing him for his burial. Incidentally, normally that anointing wouldn't happen until the body was dead. But Jesus here knows that there is no way back for him. He's come for this purpose. He might as well anoint me now because this is going to be the way it's going to be. Then he says, for the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. Now take note of that because we have a large section of the church that which will focus on social issues. Let me tell you, you will never make poverty history until Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, and he rules. And we can get so sidetracked, and the devil would love to get Christians sidetracked on social issues. All right, But that is not our mandate. We are to preach the gospel. We have a much more important task. Not to feed people that are starving so they can live a little bit longer and then die and still go to hell. We're to preach the gospel so that we're all going to die. But when we preach the gospel to people, we give them eternal food, and then they have an eternity with the Lord. That is the real issue. Now that's not to say, Psalm 41 tells us, Blessed is he that considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. We're told to, to consider the poor, and that's not the only, there's plenty of scriptures that deal with that issue. So we're not to neglect the poor, but don't let it be your focus. Don't let it be the one thing that, that stirs you in your evangelism. Our, our, our mission is to preach the word. That's what we're to do. Not get wrapped up in these social issues. And one of the big dangers of the emerging church is they go for these practical things, just like Judas is saying. Well, shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we do this? No. Because that is not our mission. You know, slavery. Huge issue at the time of the Roman Empire. Jesus and Paul never say that we should tackle that issue. Why? Because you're not going to solve it. Because it's to do with the corrupt governments that we, we sit under in this world. Poverty, the same issue. There's enough food to go around. Let's move on. Again, that brings us up to then to this, this coming out of that parenthesis. So just to recap verse 2. Um, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he raised, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. As mentioned earlier, he's now dangerous to them. Because that by reason of him, notice, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, okay, now this is a day that we refer to as Palm Sunday, okay? Uh, on the next day, 
Much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they're singing Psalm 118. It may not mean much to you and I, but it was the psalm that was to be sung when the Messiah came. And they're now singing it as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And Jesus, when he found a young ass, sat there on, as it is written, Fear not, the daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king comes sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Obviously that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Jesus intentionally fulfilling it. He's arranging all of this. Now, we just need to understand a little bit of background quickly here. These things were written of him. What things did the disciples later understand? Well, the background. Israel delivered from from Egypt, given the law at Sinai, including the law of the Sabbath for the land, that once every seven years the land was to lay fallow and let it rest. For failure to keep that, judgment was promised. And that is what led to the Babylonian captivity. This is clearly told for us in 2 Chronicles 36. In 606 BC, now I know some of you are about to say, or partly way through going the, through the book of Daniel, so this may be um, kind of a heads up for you on some of the things you're going to encounter. In 606 BC, okay, the 70 year servitude began that had been prophesied by Jeremiah, okay, and Daniel was deported as a young teenager. Okay, a 70 year period of the, what we refer to as the servitude of the nation uh, began in 606 BC. In 587 BC, 19 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and another 70-year period began, referred to by Jeremiah as the desolations. Okay, the desolations of Jerusalem, uh, scholars often refer to. Now in 539 BC, we're jumping forward, that's 70 years from 606, Babylon falls, sorry, not, it's uh, 68 years, sorry. Babylon falls to the Persians under the hand of Cyrus. And then on the 70 years, 537, Cyrus signs a decree allowing the Jews to return home. And in the British Museum in London, we have their, the steel of Cyrus, this, this cylindrical thing where Cyrus mentions that he's allowed the captivities to go back to their homelands. The Cyrus, the, the Persian, has conquered Babylon. Okay, so we have these two sieges in 606 BC, 70 years, and it is to the day, okay, we can prove that from Scripture, um, into 537 BC, this decree of Cyrus is given, allowing the Jews to return home. That is the, the servitude of the nation. In 587 BC, it's the third siege of Jerusalem. There's actually, three sieges in total. Uh, Ezekiel actually is taken in the second siege, which is 597. 587, we have the third siege. It starts a 70-year period of desolation of Jerusalem. That is finally ended in 518 by a decree of Darius Darius the Great. Okay, that's not the Darius that we read about in chapter 6 of Daniel with the lion's den. That's a different Darius. Darius, I'm not sure whether American or English, obviously, so many commentaries. That Darius in the, in the lion's den is, is a different one to Darius the Great. Okay, but they are two distinct periods of 70 years. Now, again, 19 years that separates them. Um, I believe uh, that Daniel reads Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12 about this prophecy of the desolations of Jerusalem at the point, it's exactly, we know it's the same year, we can prove that chronologically, that Daniel reads it in the year that Cyrus is allowing the Jews to go home. So just imagine now for Daniel, 
He's been there all his life in Babylon. The Jews are allowed to go back to the homeland. He obviously has been there all his life. He's not going to go back. He's an old man, possibly very frail by now. So he doesn't chooses not to make that journey. He's staying there. But he's praying. He's confessing the sins of his people that led to this whole mess in the first place. But he's also pleading with the Lord about what's the situation with the temple and the, the situation. D- Jerusalem is still desolate and according to the prophecy it's going to remain so for another 19 years. So he's confessing the sins of his people. That has happened. But now dealing with pleading with the Lord about the city. And in Daniel chapter 9 verse 20 through 22 we read, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, first part, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, so there are two focuses of his prayer. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Carry on. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, Daniel's being told he's praying about these things. Gabriel comes and says, look, this is what's going to happen. You're praying about your people and about the city. This is the future. Daniel 9.24. 490 years. We haven't got time to go into all the details behind this. But 490 years are determined upon your people, obviously Israel, and upon your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Again, uh, as you go through your study of Daniel, you'll get to dig into these things a bit more. But this is the important thing. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be, and we're given a mathematical prophecy, from the point this command is given to the point the Messiah is to come, there is to be... 49 years and 434 years. And then we're told the street should be built again and the wall in troublous times. Well, that's exactly what happened. Okay, so this command was given. There was to be this period of time where the street was to be rebuilt and everything else. And that's detailed for us in Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, they'd be rebuilding through troublous times. And that 483 years, we've got it together, was to conclude with the Messiah. Okay, so any Jew reading their scriptures... It's not cryptic, it's not complicated, could look at that prophecy and simply say, from the point that command was given to when the Messiah comes, there's going to be 483 years. Okay? Now the command was actually given by King Artaxerxes Longimanus on 1st of Nisan, 445 BC, in the Jewish calendar, to us it would have been the 14th of March. Now if you actually do the maths, I do apologise. Oh, sorry, I should actually say this. I'm not apologise. This is why I put this in here. Because God's reputation hangs on his ability to tell the future in advance. That's what he says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Okay, so back again. The 483 years from the command to the point the Messiah was prophesied to come. You can actually work that out into the number of days. Prophecy deals on 360 day years. I've got time to give you the reasons for that. Lots of reasons for it. Uh, it's conjecture that the earth used to actually be on a 360 day orbit. Um, uh, very, very interesting studies on that side of things. But 360 days times 483 years is... Come on. 
173,880 days. Okay, I know you were there, I know you were there. So you actually, we can, we can be, from this prophecy, we know the number of days from when the command was given to when the Messiah was to come. And that day was the 6th of April, AD 32, 10th of in their calendar, the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy, being hailed as the Messiah. In Luke 19, I'm just going to skip some of this actually um, from, from a time perspective, but uh, Luke gives us a great account of all that's building up to this. And the fact that they go and they find the, 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 the donkey, and Jesus gets to the donkeys, they go in. Um, and verse 38, they're saying, Blessed be the king. They're calling Jesus king. Do you remember the feeling of the 5,000? He wouldn't allow that. But now, he's arranged this thing and he's allowing it to call him king. It comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, among the multitude, said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. They know what's going on. This is blasphemy. They are saying, You are the Messiah. He answered and said unto them, No. My hour is not yet come, or well, see you tell no man, which every time we've been through going through the Gospel of John until now we've seen, he says, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones will immediately cry out. And then we find that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And look what he says. That if you had known, even now, at least in this thy day, every Jew should have known what this day was. And verse 44, that we're told that the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70, would come because thou knewest not the time of your visitation. This was the time the Messiah had been prophesied to come. They didn't understand prophecy. I guess they had emerging church people saying, don't worry about prophecy. We've got those kind of people today, haven't we? So, we've, we've seen this before. That the feeling um, of 5,000. They wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't let him take him as king. Uh, Matthew 8, 2-4. Jesus said that the man healed from leprosy, see you tell no man. Heals the man, blind man, saying, according to your faith, be unto you, and their eyes were open. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, see that no man know it. All these things we've seen in this build-up. But now for the first time in his ministry, Jesus allows himself to be worshipped and hailed as the king, the Messiah. Okay? Uh, Jesus, as I said, not only allows it, he arranged the whole event. And actually, because Israel missed it, national blindness is pronounced upon them. That's what Jesus says in Luke 19. Until, okay, we should be familiar with this, Romans 11.25 tells us, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Okay. okay, so let's move on then. And now we'll speedily get to the end of the chapter now. The people, therefore, that was with him, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for they heard that he had done this miracle. Again, just beware there, the, the danger of experience-based faith. They believe because the miracle had been done. But sometimes miracles can be deceptive. We don't want to have our faith based on experience. It's got to be based upon the word of God. Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, perceive you how you prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. They really are losing control. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was one of Bethsaida of Galilee, and designed him, saying, Sir, we will see Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in the slightest that these Greeks are coming, and there's possible reasons for that. But Jesus moves on and says, notice what he says, Jesus asked them, said, The hour is come. What day is this? The day that he'd been promised, the Messiah had been promised. The hour has come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Remember right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, water into wine, Cain and Galilee. My hour is not yet come, he says. John 7, verses 6 and 8. My time is not yet come, for my time is not yet full come. Uh, John 7, 30, we saw that no man laid hands on him because his hour is not yet come. Now it has. This has been the crescendo that John in his Gospel has been building us up to. And then Jesus tells us what's going to happen to him over the next few days. Very, very, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Hidden in what Jesus says there is an explanation of all that is going to happen. And it actually, as the Feast of Unleavened Bread was beginning, the grain of wheat idea, Jesus being put into the ground. He says, he that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honour. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Again, Jesus making note here that this is what it had all been about. This is the hour he'd been working towards. And just again, the hour, it's used figuratively. Not We're not looking specifically 60 minutes, but this is the hour. We, you know, we talk about a, you know, an hour of trial, for example. We're not talking about 60 minutes specifically. That is the way Jesus is using this phrase here. Okay, this is a, an instant season, whatever. He says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said, that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Okay, this is actually the third time in Jesus' ministry a voice from him is heard. Do you remember the other two? Yeah. Baptism and Mount of Transfiguration. The other two occasions. Uh, this is now the third time uh, we heard this voice from heaven. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus is now heading to this real showdown between him and the devil. And I, if I've been lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. That is the key to evangelism. Lift up Jesus Christ. Just lift him up. He will draw men unto him. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people asked him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. How sayest thou? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? Well, Jesus had clearly told them that he was the Son of Man time and time again. You know, again, their misunderstanding of the law didn't allow them to understand what Isaiah tells us in 53, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, had to come and suffer first. That's the bit they hadn't understood. Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. Jesus is saying, Your time is running out. Light is still on at the moment, but soon that light is going out. And this is the, the last public preaching, if you like, of Jesus. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of the light. These things spoke. Jesus departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done uh, so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. See, this is the bunch a minute ago that were talking about this. This is the one that done all these miracles. Well, they were impressed by the miracles. Their faith was an experience-based faith. And if that's the way your faith is, another experience will come along and will drag you after it. And then we're told by John that this is just fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet, which might be fulfilled, 
which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Quoted from Isaiah 53. Okay. That's what I just said. That's what I just said. Right, therefore, they could not believe, because, and notice we're told there, um, oh, sorry, this is Carol first, um, because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. They should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now there, John is quoting from Isaiah 6. But notice what we're told at the top of the page there. That Isaiah said again. I just mentioned that because there are people that will try and say, there was two different Isaiahs over what we call the Deutero-Isaiah theory. Will say there was a different Isaiah that wrote the first half of the book to the one that wrote the second half of the book, and it's of course it's utter nonsense. Uh, and I like as Chuck Lisler puts it, there's no heresy that's not already been anticipated and advanced by the Holy Spirit. And clearly, we have a quote from the first part of the book of Isaiah, a quote from the second part, and John tells us that that Isaiah, the same person, is responsible for both quotes. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. <laughs> For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Matthew 10, 32, 33, we read, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Okay, this is such an important close now to the chapter um, this is the last preaching teaching that Jesus gives to the people and this is if you like a great summary of Jesus' ministry this on its own just stands up as an amazing presentation that Jesus gives his last few verses he says Jesus cried and said he that believes on me believes not on me but on him that sent me so you've got to prophesy all this in advance he that sees me Sees him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. This is such a great, concise summary. That believing in Jesus is believing in God. Why? Because God had promised and prophesied everything about Jesus. So to believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, is simply to believe what God had already said. They're one and the same. Jesus came to bring the light. That's what the Gospel of John continually reiterates. Now, no one, none of us, nobody in this world need abide in darkness. It's a willful choice if people stay there. See, the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus said, I haven't come to judge you, but the words that I've spoken, they're compelling, they're overwhelming. Jesus had spoken the word of God. And the word brings life, if we accept it, or condemnation, if we reject it. Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you came to bear light, to bring light. Father, we thank you for your grace in allowing us to see that light, to see that you truly are the Messiah. We thank you, Lord, for your complete control on history. That to the day you rode into Jerusalem, on the day 
Over 500 years beforehand, it had been prophesied the Messiah would come. Lord, we are left in no doubt that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And we thank you for the privilege that we have, just as Lazarus and Martha and Mary had, of being loved by you. Oh Lord, you shed tears for Lazarus. Lord, you shed your blood for us. Thank you, Lord, for that incredible love. Behold, what manner of love has been bestowed on us, poured on us, that we should be called the sons of God, given that position of sonship. Lord, we thank you. Lord, may these things be really truly impressed upon our hearts. Father, may we love your word more and more each day. And Father, may we use every opportunity to be like Lazarus was, to be dangerous. Lord, be living epistles of the power of your resurrection. Lord, keep us as we go from here tonight, we pray. And Lord, bless us over this coming month. And Lord, bring us back again safely next time we meet. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name.